Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our cardiac lead here at MCHD, Brad Ward. Hello. Regular guest of the podcast, and uh, always happily uh, invited on to talk to us about all things cardiac and EMS. And today we're going to talk about the PEACE study, and specifically the concept of delaying EKG acquisition post-ROSC in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And as I like to do before we get into any study or journal club type discussion, let's let's dig into this acronym and see how how fair they were with all things acronym. And so PEACE, post-ROSC, so there's your P, EKG, after cardiac arrest. Yeah, it's a, the E in the middle of the arrest. The A is where they lost me. They had post-ROSC, yeah. EKG, after cardiac arrest. And I guess you could say arrest with an E, nah. but I think they pulled that E out of the middle. So yep. I give them a, I don't know, seven and a half out of 10. I was going to say B minus. B minus. Yeah. Well, seven and a half out of 10 is a 75. So I think we're probably pretty close on our grade there. Let's, let's get into the study and what were the questions and hypothesis? Basically, the question they asked was, does timing of EKG post-ROS change the false positive rate for STEMI? So I'm going to ask it to you this way, Brad. If you get an EKG immediately after cardiac arrest, I mean, what are we looking for in STEMI? You're looking for ST segment elevation. As a sign of? As a sign of cardiac injury. Right. And so if we get that immediately after cardiac arrest, could that be cardiac arrest ischemia? Could Absolutely. It, could it be obstructive ischemia? It could be the fact that they were just dead a minute ago and they've been hypoxic for 20 minutes and that's what you're seeing. So the idea is, is that if we delay EKG after ROSC, will we be more accurate with finding true obstructive lesions? Because that's what we care about. We care about getting these patients to the hospital quickly and getting them revascularized if needed. And from an EMS standpoint, who do we activate? Who do we not? And we're going to talk a little bit about this study in relation to, you know, some other stuff like COACT um, as we move through. But this has been a moving target over the past several years in EMS and in, you know, emergent cardiac care. And realistically, this is a very eloquent, uh, simple thought that, to be honest, I wish we'd have had because yeah. it really just kind of makes common sense. So let's roll into the PEACE study. Who did it? Baldy et al. in JAMA Open. So we'll link the study in the show notes. It's a retrospective cohort multi-center study, which means they look backwards at patients that had already been cared for. And they looked at a group of patients, and those patients, the exposure in that group was out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that had ROSC, that got an EKG, and that ended up having angiography performed. They looked between January of 2015 and December of 2018, and in the multi-center nature of the study, three hospitals, one in Italy, one in Switzerland, and one in Austria. The primary outcome that they were looking for in this study was false positive EKGs i.e. this patient had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they had ROSC, the EKG showed STEMI, the patient got angiography, so we, that's our cohort, and then when they got angiography, the cardiologist squirted the dye and the pipes were all open. Yep. Okay. So that's our, that's our primary outcome. The EKGs in the study were evaluated by two different cardiologists. They were blinded to times, blinded to cath results, and if there was any disagreement, a third cardiologist broke the tie. Isolated posterior STEMIs, 
And quick review, what do you see in isolated posterior STEMIs? You're going to see ST depression in your anterior leads. V1 and V2, good. You passed the test. That wasn't on the list. That was uh, me sneaking a pop quiz in on Brad. Yeah, thank God. And Scarbosa criteria were all included. Um, significant stenosis in the study was defined as greater than 50% left main or greater than 75% elsewhere. Who did they include and exclude, Brad? So everybody who was 18 years older with non-medical cardiac arrest were excluded. So that was your trauma arrests. Exactly. Makes sense. They don't have clogged pipes. They right. have uh, tension pneumos and bleeding livers and crushed pelvises. Absolutely. And then kiddos. So we didn't include any pediatric patients because it's a low population with obstructive cardiac disease. Fair enough. Then we have 560, excuse me, 586 consecutive post-ROSC patients were admitted, but 152 had no EKG and 64 got no angiography, which leaves us with 370 patients in the final analysis. What did they find? They found out of those 370 patients, again, they had all of the exposure, out of hospital arrest, got ROSC, got an EKG, they got CAFT. 198 of those had STEMIs, on presentation, 172 had no STEMIs. 85% of the patients were witnessed. 73% had bystander CPR. 85% had initial shockable rhythms, which makes sense in, in you know the in this whole discussion area that the STEMIs and the obstructions are higher probability in shockable rhythm out of hospital cardiac arrest. 57% of the patients had good neurologic survivals, CPC1, CPC2. If you'd listened to the podcast before, uh, CPC score is just a judge of functionality after uh, out of hospital cardiac arrest. The patients were primarily male, about 75%, and in their 60s, which makes sense. These are out of hospital cardiac arrest. The STEMI patients were more likely shockable. They got more shocks and they got more epi. Again, which kind of makes intuitive sense. 80% of the STEMI patients got cast uh, versus 57% of the non-STEMI. And again, this, this catheterization could occur at any point during the hospitalization. So this is not just, you know, immediate cath. This is anybody that had arrest, post-ROSC, EKG, and angiography. So that's why when you think about it, there were 198 STEMIs in the, in the 370, but 172 no STEMIs. What about EKG timing? Let's get to some of the good stuff because this is the real question. So did the timing of the EKG change the predictive value for coronary occlusion? Because that's really what the study was asking, right? And the hypothesis of the study is what, Brad? What do they think? So it's yes. They think that an earlier EKG might more likely show a false positive due to an overlap on the ST segments being from ischemia or being from just an hypoxic event or an arrest injury. Right. So again, just to restate that, you know, ST elevation is a sign of, uh, of injury, right? And is that injury low flow cardiac arrest injury or is that injury actual occlusion? Actual and, occlusion. And yeah, that's what we care about. That's what we want. Yeah, we, we want to take ST elevation MIs to the cath lab because they need reperfusion. We don't want to take them to the cath lab if they need good quality post-arrest care, which right. is blood pressure management, glucose management, you know, respiratory care, you know, oxygenation, management. targeted temperature management, all those things. So in this group of patients, in this 370, 128 of them had an EKG obtained less than eight minutes. 126 had an EKG obtained between eight and 33 minutes. And 121 had an EKG greater than 33 minutes. So basically we had a group of 
early, mid, and late EKG acquisition. If you look at the false positive rate in these three groups, your false positive rate for true STEMI that the cardiologist said, yep, that's a STEMI, and nope, their cath was clean, was 18.5%, so almost 20% false positive in the early EKG group. So less than eight minutes EKG obtained, yep, that's a STEMI, squirt in the coronary arteries, clean pipes. And that's really what we want to avoid, right? We don't want to waste the resources, the side effects, the potential downstream complications from an unnecessary procedure in a delaying patient. Delaying care. Delaying care yeah. in a patient that doesn't need it. So what about the mid-range group? In the mid-range group, there was, again, eight to 33 minute acquisition. What was the false positive rate? The false positive rate in that group dropped to 7%. So much less, you know, more than half from the early group. When you extend it out to 33 minutes or greater, the long-range group, that false positive rate stayed around 6%. So you didn't get a whole lot of gain by saying, well, let's rate, wait 33 minutes. Sure. And in my mind, realistically, you know, this kind of makes common sense. Are we ever going to wait 33 minutes in an EMS setting to get an EKG? Absolutely not. But the difference between eight minutes, I mean, that's the difference really in the post-resuscitation packaging time. Absolutely. And when you take all the stats nerd portion of this and you adjust for age, you adjust for sex, you adjust for epinephrine administration, number of defibrillations, heart rate, et cetera, this difference remains. So I'm going to just state it one more time. If you obtain the EKG super early, less than eight minutes, your false positive rate was almost 20%. And if you dropped that to eight to 33 minutes, that cut in half and, and your false positive rate dropped to around 7% and stayed there even out past 33 minutes. So answered their question, pretty interesting answer. And, yeah. and really it's applicable. So what are the strengths and the weaknesses of the study? A novel question. Don't know that this has been reported anywhere else in the literature. So anytime something's novel, it's gonna pique our interest. Multi-center, right? So it wasn't just one hospital. Now there's always the negative of anytime we look backwards, what do we introduce? We introduce bias, sure. but it's a start. I mean, I think that it's, it's really an interesting concept and log logically it makes sense. Now, there was no distinction in this study between, you know, did the stent occur because of an acute occlusion or, you know, a true culprit lesion? And when you dig into some of these post-ROSC uh, cath studies, that idea of unstable versus stable lesion, you know, was it a true acute occlusion? Was it an unstable lesion? Was it a quote-unquote culprit lesion? Those definitions can really vary even from hospital to hospital. From cardiologist to cardiologist. So, th so that gets pretty muddy. So we're not, they didn't dive into that in this study. We're not going to dive in that in the, our discussion today. Um, and, you know, there's a 25% in the study where the post-ROSC EKG was missing. So is there potential for bias or error there? Absolutely. Yeah. And realistically, a lot of these patients had what to start with, or all of them had what to start with. Death. They had cardiac arrest. Yeah. So a majority, or not a majority, but a large uh, portion of this patient population were excluded. Why? Because angiography wasn't performed. Why? Because they died. Because they died. So, you know, there's always the opportunity to flip this forward and look at it prospectively. Um, it's probably you know, what we should, what we should do now. So that, that brings us to the next question, you know, from an EMS standpoint, what do you think, Brad, do we overhaul protocols here? I think it's something to keep an eye on. And I think it's an, an easy change to make. And it's not like we would be doing nothing during those eight minutes. If anybody's ever worked cardiac arrests out in the field, they know that you have to get them out of the grocery store. You have to carry them downstairs. You have to get them out of the car, out of the field, the bathroom, wherever they decide to have their cardiac arrest is never convenient. And 
And realistically, yeah. what what's the one life-saving thing we know we can do with these patients? Is transport them to the hospital. Right. But and we can manage their pressure. We can manage their airway. We can make sure that everything's in place for pressure support so that they don't die again. Because the person, the person most likely to die is the one who was dead just a minute ago. And we know from, from COACT, we, we discussed the COACT study. Go back and listen to the prior episode on that, uh, you know, probably a year or so ago. Um, that looked at uh, the most, you know, it's the most recent data suggesting that immediate cath is probably not warranted in post-ROSC non-STEMI patients. Right. So if you take a post-ROSC patient without a STEMI, realistically, they need early critical care, right? Yeah. And that's what, that's what the most recent literature tells us. So we probably shouldn't be activating those patients based on that. Um, so yeah, delaying our EKG eight minutes, if that leads to better accuracy on who needs that cath lab act- activation, right. then this may be worth worth instituting. And realistically, I don't know that it means, and like you said, I don't think it means an overhaul of our protocols. I think it just means prioritization. Correct. Just like you said, right? What do we need to prioritize? We need to prioritize that critical care. Yeah. Sedation. Yes. Oxygenation. Blood pressure control. Uh, all, you know, glucose management, temperature management, those things all need to go first. And then once we get the patient packaged and we're ready to get them to the hospital quickly, which we're, which we're going to do, then obtain the 12 lead. Um, you know, and it's an an excellent reminder to focus on those lifesavers after ROSC. And remember that an immediate 12 lead is probably not one of those immediate lifesavers. Focus on oxygenation, circulation, Lung protective ventilation, a big, you know, a big uh, initiative here at MCHD. Adequate sedation, and we're going to talk a little bit about sedation uh, post paralysis on an upcoming episode, yep. just as a preview. Then, when all that's done, get what? Get your EKG then. Get your EKG. And if we're being honest, get serial EKGs to watch for changes. Are you seeing the ST segments resolve or head towards resolution? That might point you in the the clan of it being a a cardiac arrest injury or a hypoxic injury if you see the persistent st segment elevation or it getting worse that's what your indication is to activate excellent reminder totally off script and i appreciate that that lead in there vascular injury is dynamic and so let's say you get your ekg immediately because the you know your your super active new attendants already got the stickers on and the patient ready to go and you get your 12 lead at four minutes and it looks like stemmy yep at minute 12, when you're in route, get a second one. Absolutely. And if the STEMI's resolved, you can be confident that, hey, that's probably post-ROSC ischemia Absolutely. and not true obstructive ischemia. Maybe we can wait here and then let the hospital decide, yeah. let the cardiologist decide and move from there. So, you know, those life-saving steps probably take 8 to 10 minutes. So we're probably not changing anything. A great reminder from Brad there, as always, we're dealing with vascular occlusion, which is a dynamic event. Serial EKGs are never, uh, never hurtful. Never bad and, thing. And this is really a situation where the yeah. opposite to our normal may occur, right? What do we normally teach with serial EKGs? That patient's ashen, sweaty, gray. They're clutching their chest. Yep. And you say to yourself, man, that patient looks like a STEMI. Yep. And you get an EKG with a ton of ST depression. What do you do in that situation? Because you know you what's coming. Wait. You know what's coming. So you take another one and another one and another one until you find it. This is the opposite. Turn it 180 and say, okay, I got this EKG right after ROSC. Yep. I've got ST elevation, but I know that this may just be low flow. So if it's low flow and I give them a push dose epi, I start a a norepi drip, I start a fluid bolus, I titrate their sedation, I get their vent set up, I get EKG number two, I'm almost, almost, I'm expecting resolution at that point, right? 
All right, so it's a little different paradigm for us, but it really fits with the way we think about dynamic EKG changes. And if you get that second EKG and you have gigantic tombstones compared to the first one, where should that lead you? That should lead you to activate it. The cath lab, right? So interesting stuff. We'll connect the link piece study in the show notes. As, as always, you know, we're going to take it home with a summary. In patients without a hospital cardiac arrest, when you get an EKG, you get a subsequent heart cath, the earlier the EKG, the higher the false positive rate. So the earlier you get that EKG, the less likely that patient is to have true occlusion on cath if they had STEMI. So hopefully that's clear. In that early EKG cohort, the risk of a false positive or the rate of false positive was almost 20%. So if you rush and you get that EKG and you only trust that first one, one in every five of the patients that you send to the cath lab are going to have clean coronaries and they're not going to be in the ICU. They're not going to be cooled. Right. They're not going to be as aggressively managed as they could be because you're diverting attention to the cath. And if we decrease that by about 10 minutes, you know, we cut that rate in over half. Less than one in 10. All by just rearranging our priorities. Yep. It takes no real cost, just some extra knowledge. Um, weeding out some of those ST elevation, why? Because they were probably due to low flow and not true occlusion. So rearrange, don't change. That was the uh, mantra that I came up with. That's a good one. Rearrange, don't change. Uh, lung protective ventilation, sedation, circulation, oxygenation first. Those are the life savers. Get them to the hospital where those can be managed aggressively. Yep. Targeted temperature management, throw that one in there. And then get your EKG last. Stay tuned. As always, this is a retrospective study. We say it every time. Prospective studies are needed. Brad, thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. Everybody out there, thanks for listening. As always, if you have questions or comments, podcast at mchd-tx.org. We're trying uh, recording now, so we'll be on on the YouTube channel with this one. So if you want to see our ugly faces, you can check us out there. Uh, leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, we'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.